Hi, I'm Shereen Fatek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the playbook for the industry one decision at a time. But guess what? This week, we're changing our own playbook. You're listening to the last episode of Making Marketing, at least under that name. After the Thanksgiving break, we'll be back as the Modern Retail Podcast, where I'll bring you conversations with entrepreneurs specific to retail from the world of DTC, but also the legacy world of retail as well. So stay tuned and stay subscribed. Until then, this episode is rounding up a few highlights from conversations I've had in the last year. Every time I talk to an entrepreneur who's taken VC funding or hasn't, I want to know all about that decision. And it turns out that while it often makes a company's growth possible, it also makes growth mandatory, a do-or-die imperative from investors expecting massive returns from companies that may just be getting their bearings. First up, Kevin Lavelle. Kevin is a founder of menswear brand Mizzen and Maine. Kevin, who spoke to me on the podcast when he was CEO, he's now the chairman, has a pretty unique approach to funding, as he told me. Um, we raised a little bit of angel money over the first right. few years. But and you didn't go out to a big VC and say, and that was that's something you've still not done. Correct. <laughs> go yeah. out to a big VC and say, hey, we're doing this thing and... I've, I've spoken with a couple of venture capital firms just to kind of understand and see the interest. Uh, I would be lying if I said it wouldn't have been really cool to go get a ton of money to go just plow into Facebook. We did start spending money on Facebook about three, three and a half years in. I think that's when it was. Was 20, that sort of, okay, we have money now. Let's, or was there a specific need that you were saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this now? I think it was both. Um, we'd raised a little bit of money and it's also now you need to start getting your name out there even more. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, when we did start spending money on Facebook, it wasn't, okay, now we have our brand figured out, so we'll go spend money on it. It was just part of the gradual evolution. Um, but not having any money forces you to be really creative and, again, get really close to the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at a certain point, like everybody, you need to, to, go, to go grow organically. But the, the humorous story on the venture capital firm is I, I spoke and we had a lot of positive metrics. We had a lot of good things. And, and I will never forget, she said, I just don't see how you 10x your revenue over the next 12 to 18 months. So we're not interested. And I said, 10x. 10, 10x. It stuck with me forever. <laughs> Uh, and so I just said, you are absolutely right. Because you don't know. There's no way that we were going to do not, it. And you're probably not. And you're actually and, 100% not. Oh, it was, it's, I can, I would bet the company that we're not going to because we have to buy inventory to hit that. And so to 10x our revenue would mean we'd have to take a bet on inventory to get there. And our supply chain just, maybe we're just not sophisticated enough, but also I can tell you from the way we make our product, that bet is so astronomical that it just wasn't going to happen. And she was right. So that's that's a great point. And I it's think it's also that's, okay, by the way. And that's well, it is okay. But also that that my my question was that this is clearly what sort of the narrative in the market is. I mean, and that's why I sort of go on my little rants about Twitter and you know, only really joking uh, that it's never going to work, but there is a lot of truth to the amazing and intense amount of expectations. And this we've seen this happen in media. We saw this happen in publishing. And it's interesting to me that the expectations are always going to be high. And I think, you know, the 10x revenue, the, well, I just don't see how this is going to happen. And that's why. But this is something that brand founders, whatever category in DTC they're in, are being asked mm-hmm. every day. So how do you sort of reconcile... This industry that, again, is going to have some winners, going to have some losers, but so much of this is just pressure from VC. Is that is that why there's sort of this like potential DTC is a bubble kind of conversation happening or is there something else? 
I, I would say it's largely due to the speculative nature of the VCs. And we, look, we raise money from a private equity firm, which has much more realistic expectations of building a valuable brand over time. And was that deliberate? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we received a growth investment from Catterton, L. Catterton about two years ago, and they've been a wonderful partner. And they push hard on growth because they invested in a growth company. <laughs> but there's no just artificial pump of just get it up to here and then we'll go ahead and exit and we'll all you know, uh, go, go celebrate. It's go build the most valuable brand that you can. And some brands are going to have huge years and some are going to have over five years, a different path, but end up being more valuable. And there's been a lot that's been written on the counter to, um, the money coming in is you're better off as a founder selling your company, owning 80% of it and selling it for $50 million, than selling it for $300 million and owning 2% of the company. And, and those are obviously, um, almost facilities numbers, but mm-hmm. there, there's... But that's an important point. How, it, what are you actually going to get out of it when that inevitable exit happens? Yeah. And if you chase the growth, there's a lot of excitement about it. But at the end of the day, what, what have you really created? And uh, I know of a lot of founders who ended up losing control of their company because they were just chasing wild growth. And while things are going well, you're on top of the world. Um, but as soon as uh, something starts to slow down or the algorithm changes or something goes wrong with one of your suppliers, there's no patience. And that's a very bad place to be. I also spoke with Kevin about brands that sell items exclusively over the Internet. Those are called at least sometimes DTC brands. And as I've watched these brands grow up, they've often branched out into wholesale pretty quickly, which always makes me wonder, is DTC just a launch strategy? And of course, if it's just a bubble... Is it feasible in the long run? I think there are a few brands who will potentially remain online only. One that comes to mind is Third Love. Um, I've known Dave and his wife Heidi for a while. They are awesome. I actually for those have, who don't know, Third Love bras known for sort of Fit Finder, which yes. was kind of the most uh, most sort of evocative and interesting way to use kind of customer data and personalization, which now everybody's copying. Which yes, I love. everybody's <laughs> copying, and they have built a powerhouse. I mean, I've come to know them. They're a Catterton investment as well. What they're doing is remarkable. And I do think that there's a chance that they will be online only because of the infinite scalability of what they're doing. And they they have come to be known for the absolute best fitting bra that you can buy. And so they don't really need to open a store because they get it so right online. And there's so much interest. At a certain point, they may open a few stores, but they don't need to go into wholesale in the same capacity. Right. I think that's going to be the absolute exception to to the rule. I do think every other brand that claims they're online only will either peter out or they'll need to differentiate. The stores thing is interesting because I think, you know, stores also act as a marketing tool. And mm-hmm. I think for a lot of brands, online, previously online only brands, et cetera, DNVBs, a lot of them are okay with opening a couple stores that mm-hmm. sort of act more as like a marketing investment than a conversion instrument. Yeah, um, and we've seen yeah. we've seen the very positive halo effect of stores. We've opened we've done a bunch of pop-ups. I can tell you we will never open a store in Soho. <laughs> it's just not where our customers shopping. Right. But we do continue to look back into New York for maybe financial district or midtown where our customer is because we're not fashion. We're just we sell dress shirts that stretch mm-hmm. and the best damn dress shirts that stretch. But we're not that fashion and the rents in Soho are so high that we can just never make it work. But we're seeing our stores is a great brand builder and they're profitable because we don't go in and 
spend $200,000 on building out this elaborate setup and store experience. And um, the positive effect that we see, Fort Worth, we, we have a store in Clear Fork Mall across from Neiman Marcus, a really unique outdoor shopping concept. And um, Fort Worth, the zip codes surrounding the store were in the top 50 or so of and, our and online demographics. And you chose it kind of, t- tell us a little bit actually about choosing that, where that store goes, because you just made a great point about very, Soho not being for you, you know? It was very opportunistic. We had a great lease opportunity right out of the gate. Um, we look definitely strategically on location and demographics and zip codes, but then also where can we get a lease that when people want me to sign a five to 10 year lease and my business is now it's going to turn seven this year. Like I'm not ready to sign a five-year lease. (laughs) So we looked very opportunistically and this just happened to be there and we were going to be there for a few months and then we extended and extended and extended. But what we found is the zip codes surrounding our Fort Worth store are now in the top 20 Mm. of our online um, business. So it went from top 50-ish to now it's in the top 20 because what we see is once you have a store, there's a level of credibility that is so significant. And with how easy it is to launch a brand online today and with Instagram and Facebook to start targeting people very specifically, Instagram has really become kind of the online QVC. There's mm-hmm. a new brand. There's a new product every minute. Um, I've seen more. I've seen probably a dozen potential competitors start up in the last three years to Mizzen. And then within six to 12 months, they're gone. Right. Their potential in the way that they're mm-hmm. kind of in your category and doing sort of what you're doing. Right. But then they go away and maybe they're retooling or maybe it just didn't work or whatever. But when all of these new brands happen all the time, if someone's hearing about Mizzen for the first time, it's one of all these other random new brands. But when you have stores, when you're in Nordstrom, when you have these partnerships, it gives us that credibility and authenticity that money cannot buy. Yeah. And um, people have AstroTurf stores. Kit and Ace opened whatever it was, 45 stores in the first 18 months of existence, and now they're effectively gone. And now for a quick break for our messages. Next up, I speak with Rachel Drury. Rachel is the founder of the subscription frozen food company, Daily Harvest. They make soups and they make smoothies. They also make bowls. She told me all about how she bootstrapped the business and about the dangerous effects VC funding can have. Yeah. So I bootstrapped the business for the first year. Um, and it was really important to me because, you know, I'd never raised money before. I... It was a little um, intimidating, and I was like, I'm not really sure I want this. Like, do I want investors? When I was um, at my previous job, I had felt like, you know, the relationship with the investors was confusing, (laughs) and I was like, I'm not really sure what I want. So bootstrapping in the beginning was really important to me, and and because of that, I was really – Capital efficient, let's cheap. say. Cheap, frugal, any of those words will work. Um, and that's why for such a long time, it was literally just me. And, um, you know, when I hired our first employee, it was also just me. But, you know, it was to the point where I just couldn't be everywhere at once. And I needed somebody else to, to um, you know, kind of hold the fort down in certain areas of the business so I could focus on others. And when I really decided that I needed to raise and I needed to to go forward was when I realized that I was like my own worst enemy, um, that my frugality and like my desire to um, to like bootstrap was getting in the way of growth. Like people sure. wanted it and I couldn't keep up with demand. And yeah. it was like, what am I doing? Yeah. Uh, so after I had kind of raised that initial round of funding, I was like, all right, so what am I building towards. Ultimately, I will have to raise another round of funding. This is kind of how this works. I do plan to build a profitable business. It's something that's very, 
that was very important to me at the time. Uh, it is still very important to me. Um, but when it came to like the discipline and and like how I thought about it and how I could be very uh, like results driven, I thought about that Series A and and what that would look like. Um, and I spoke to a ton of a Series A investors and I said tell me what your ideal Series A company looks like. Before, I mean, this was like before I was hawking anywhere. This was just like, you know, literally tell me what, what, what my business would look like in its ideal state where you would have no choice but to put your money where your mouth was. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were very free-flowing with that information. And I also got to build relationships, which was really cool. And then I didn't build for that, but I had those um, like key metrics in the back of my mind. Like this is what success means. Um, And then I had a ton of other metrics for success, which was like, you know, on the marketing side and blah, 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 blah. But um, that's I've always been very metrics driven and, and making sure that like I'm building towards like what I want something to look like a year from now, two years from now. I'm uh, fascinated that by that actually. That's, and that seems to me, it sounds like a pretty, pretty cool way and pretty smart way yeah. to do it. But investors are so interesting too. I mean, so VCs are, I mean, just in general kind of, I've always thought about sort of, okay, a VC's goal and how yep. a VC looks at kind of their goals and then how their portfolio companies then fit into They're not goals. always right. And they're not always right. No. Um, Just but inputs. At this, but at the same time, you're getting some pretty good and interesting inputs. Totally. And they see a lot. So that's that's what you really get from those conversations. What were you hearing from in terms of like the seeing a lot perspective, the, the competitive market? Okay, nobody's really doing what exactly you're doing, but there's right. a lot of adjacent things. You're competing with people for right. not just necessarily their kind of budget for that specific product, but so many other things. Totally. And and the conversation I had a lot is, um, who are your competitors? And I said, well, depends on what business you think we're in. We're not, like, people would, would kind of pigeonhole us to frozen food. And I was like, hey, we're not competi- competing with frozen peas. Sorry, we're not. You're not competing with Hungry Man. We're not competing with Hungry Man. Like, Nobody seriously. can compete with Nobody Hungry Man. Nobody can compete with Hungry Man. Totally true. One of the things, again, we've heard so many people on the show talk about is, the intense amount of pressure they're under. And some of that pressure has come because they've taken a bunch of funding. Absolutely. It's coming from there. It's coming from just this insane kind of world of new brands and new products. Mm -hmm. Everyone's launching a new brand every day. Um, To like make your market or sort of make your targets no matter what. And that's leading to some ballooning. (sighs) I have such issues with this. So this is what I call the cycle of torching cash. And I think that there's so much VC money out there. What's happening is anybody can raise and then they can throw money at the problem. They're like, it doesn't matter if people don't like what I'm making. I'll just throw money at the problem and I can keep acquiring customers. And it doesn't matter if my CAC rises to $250 because there's, there'll always be somebody. And that is dangerous. And what that does is it it means Facebook makes a ton of money. <laughs> and Facebook is. And, and everybody else suffers. Everybody right. else suffers. So I've decided... Early on, and my investors have known this about me since day one, so I've set that expectation. I'm not playing that game. Okay. I am in the I am in the business of building a strong, good business. Business. Sustainable. Sustainable business. Okay. And, um, you know, we've just said, all right, you know, if, if CACs are rising because other people are making stupid decisions, we're going to go elsewhere. And we're going to, you know, we're going to go into, into other channels and mm-hmm. do things that are, are different. And it's okay if if one week or one it's month totally you don't miss those again those targets because I think that's the fear I hear from founders. That's absolutely. The fear. Oh my but god! But you'd be surprised what happens if you say to your team, like, "Here's where I draw the line. Figure out other ways to do it." 
They rise to the occasion and they figure it out. Like, you know, just because if we miss one week, we make it up the next week, like with with dividends. So, you know, just building that discipline I've found to be really important since day one. And I've also aligned our investors around it. Next, Joe Kudla's on. Joe tells me also about the pressure of fulfilling growth targets for investors. So far, his athleisure brand, Vori, has only done a small angel funding round. There, that, that pressure is very real. And we've been focused on, um, you know, we, we did a small friends and family round. We've not um, done big... You have to insti- listen to your family with asking. <laughs> we haven't done the institutional funding. And I think, you know... What I would just say is that there's a lot of different investors out there that are willing to invest in great ideas. And I think it's nice if you can prove your concept through friends and family and be a little bit more in the driver's seat with just like who you choose to partner with, right? If if you go to the VC community pre-revenue, they're going to dictate terms oftentimes, unless your idea is really, really great. And I just think... Um, that's where people can get in trouble. Like mm. you don't want a VC running your business. I, I just really don't believe that. I yeah. think you want to be in control and there's ways to find great, incredible investors that will be super helpful for your business, but also invest in you and, and believe in the engine of growth that you've already defined and built. And they just want to be supportive and help you on that and on that path. And, you know, Viore will eventually do something institutional. Um, it's it's kind of in our roadmap, and we're really excited about that. We believe that the right partner is out there um, for when that time comes. And just as I spoke with Rachel Drury about investing in Instagram, I asked Kudla about the rising costs of customer acquisition, this time on Facebook. Here's what he had to say. You know, as a marketer, I don't think there's ever been a time, still today, um, that you have such an incredible captive audience, right? I think people between the ages of, I was just looking at this, um, I think it's between the ages of of like 25 and 45 spend on average like two and a half hours a day on social media. Um, And that's just incredible, like to be able to get those eyeballs and to really understand, you know, who those people are and what makes them tick. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's challenging is you just have a lot of noise, right? There's a lot of people competing for people's attention on social. Um, And so it really comes down to great product. It's a very visible world. So if you're not invested in great product, it's just not going to work. It might take a little bit more to get capture their attention and get them to try you initially, but I still believe there's no, no space quite like it out there. And, you know, our marketing mix is really diversified, right? It's not just Facebook anymore. That's, we were fortunate to be early in Facebook advertising back in 2015. Um, and, and it, it has been a great channel for us. What we find so interesting is that our CPAs are continuing to go down as we learn, um, more about our customer as we get better at serving different types of creative and copy for different product categories. Like one of the things that's more challenging about what we're doing is, you know, Viore is not just selling an item. Like we're not just an item driven business. You see a lot of people, they launch on Kickstarter, they've got an idea for a product, then mm-hmm. they take it to social and put a budget behind it. Viore is selling a lifestyle. Like we have hundreds of products right. across men's and women's. And so... And you did basically from day one, you had many products. Yes. You never did the, okay, we'll launch with, you know, a mattress and that's then right. maybe do a night lamp. Yeah, that's right. You know, we always were a broader collection. It was always more about this this active lifestyle. And um, we do use specific products to kind of champion that customer acquisition effort because I think it's important that you really showcase your product through your advertising. But what's more important than anything is having a process and a system for producing a lot of content and learning and pivoting and adapting quickly. And 
you know, some people do that through relationships with agencies. We've chosen to do that in-house so that mm-hmm. we can be really nimble. Um, and I think that's really helped us to just move quickly, navigate quickly without losing, you know, a lot of money um, learning a hard lesson. And lastly, here's part of my conversation with Jed Berger, CMO at Foot Locker. We didn't talk about venture funding. Foot Locker is in a pretty different space from some of the brands we just talked to. But instead, he gave me his take on how the job description in the world of marketing could soon change. Here was my question to Berger. When you, when I, if I say kind of what's going on with the marketing function, mm. what sort of comes to mind? Um, what is the sea change that's really happening? I mean, it's big. It's an evolving, it's an evolving career. Mm-hmm. As somebody who is in a position, uh, I would say a, a high level position in the field, um, it's something that I would say keeps me up. It's become more, uh, you know, there's plenty of articles recent, re- recently written about how brands are either replacing CMOs with chief revenue officers, blah, blah, blah. Chief growth officers. Chief growth officers is a popular title. Um, and again, whether those are the same people or not, often they, they are. Uh, you know, I talk all the time to young people who put brand marketing on their resumes. I say, don't do that. <laughs> that became a dirty word. Nobody wants a brand marketer. <laughs> you want to be a product marketer? People like the word product now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, very, very rarely are CMOs becoming presidents or CEOs. Very, very rarely are CMOs getting on public boards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at myself personally as a business partner much more than I do as a marketer. I, um, you know, I think I, I, t- I say all the time that if you look at the young companies today that have been incredibly successful, they were started by somebody with a, with a strong vision mm-hmm. of, of brand purpose and, what the, uh, and, and, and an idea. That person is an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. That person isn't a marketer. But are we just talking semantics here? And and I joke, but I don't joke. I will write the book, Marketing Needs a Rebrand. Um, hey, the shoemaker's son, right? Never has good shoes, no, I believe it goes. Exactly. And, and you know, I think that, that it's, it's an interesting time. And, uh, you know, I think in many, many, many um, companies that there needs to be a redefinition of what potentially the CMO job or the role of marketing within the organization or could be how it reports or what the titles are or what the accountabilities are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the, 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 the industry is, the marketing industry is, is in for an evolution. <laughs> And that's all for the final episode of Making Marketing. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Pierre Bienname. The Modern Retail Podcast will be back in December with a new slate of guests, a new theme song, and a renewed mission to bring you insights from people leading the world of retail. I will stay the same. Thank you for listening. 